Hey everyone, welcome to this podcast edition of History with Sai, where today we'll be continuing our study of the Elamites. In this program, we'll be focusing on the Neo-Elamite period, which is basically where we left off, I guess, in September of 2019. So without further ado, let's begin. Before we get into the Neo-Elamite period, let's do a brief synopsis of what we covered in past episodes. The history of Elam extends at least as far back as the 3rd millennium BC. Elam, though, is the Sumerian name for the country. Akkadian speakers of Babylonia called it Elamtu, while its own inhabitants called it Haltamti or Hatamti. Its two most important political, cultural, and economic centers were the cities of Anshan and Susa. In fact, most major Elamite kings took the title King of Anshan and Susa. From the mid-3rd millennium to about 650 BC, Elam was a major regional power, with extensive diplomatic, commercial, and military interests in its core areas of southwestern and south-central Iran, Mesopotamia, and at times, even parts of what is today Syria. It reached the peak of its power during what we call the Shimashki and Sukalma periods, or roughly between 2100 to 1500 BC. After this, Elam went through a slow but steady decline, though it was still powerful enough to influence the politics and economics of Mesopotamia and beyond. The time period between the fall of the powerful Middle Elamite Shutrukid dynasty around 1100 BC to the rise of the Achaemenid Persian Empire around 550 BC is known as the Neo-Elamite period. Similar to the early and middle Elamite periods, the land of Elam during this time also roughly encompassed the modern Iranian provinces of Khuzistan and Fars. Though Susa still thrived as one of the great Near Eastern metropolises, for reasons unknown, Anshan had greatly diminished in both size and influence. Unfortunately, little is known about how or why this actually happened, as the site of Anshan, known as Tali Malyan, has not been thoroughly excavated. The Neo-Elamite period is arguably one of the most complex of all eras of Elamite history. This is generally due to the sources, or rather lack of sources, that are available. There are very few Elamite sources outside of a few fragments of inscriptions uncovered in and around Susa or etched into nearby cliffs, and in all honesty, they don't really tell us much. For example, collectively, they mention the names of only 12 kings during a span of approximately 550 years, so the reconstruction of local dynasties from these is nearly impossible. The vast majority of our knowledge comes from Babylonian and Assyrian texts and inscriptions, and these, as you've probably already guessed, can be quite biased. Most of them are excerpts from chronicles, seals, and a few economic and religious texts. They also mostly deal with political history, and so it's really difficult to know what life for the common man or woman in Elam was like at the time. In a previous episode entitled Nebuchadnezzar and the Triumph of Babylon over Elam, we learned that the last Middle Elamite king on record, Hutelutu in Shushinak, was defeated by the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar I, at a battle near the Ulai River. For the next three centuries after this, Historical information on Elam is almost non-existent. What we do have are some Elamite texts from the site of ancient Anshan. 
They make reference to two Babylonian kings. One of these, Mar Biti Apla Usar, is said to have had Elamite ancestry. This has actually also been confirmed in a Babylonian chronicle, which reads, Mar Biti Apla Usar, a distant descendant of Elam, reigned six years. He was buried in Sargon's palace. One king, the dynasty of Elam, he reigned six years. The second Babylonian king who appears in Elamite texts is Marduk Balasu Ikbi, to which in 814 BC, a garrison of Elamite troops was sent to support his rule. Other references to Elam come from Assyrian sources. In one of them, King Shamshi Adad V, after the Battle of Dur Papsukal, reports that the people of areas in and around Der, Parsumash, and Bitbunaki fled and sought shelter in Elam. A few decades later, there's mention of an Elamite ambassador at the court of the Assyrian capital of Kalhu, as well as reference to wine rations for Elamite employees. There's also a few texts describing Assyrians manufacturing a certain Elamite bow and equipping their archers with it. As interesting as these fragments are, they don't really give us a clear picture of what was going on in Elam at the time. Besides inscriptions, archaeological surveys have yielded a few interesting findings, at least with regard to the population. While the populace of Susa seems to have remained relatively stable, that of Anshan over time greatly decreased. In fact, archaeologists believe that it may have shrunk from a city of 30 to 40,000 around 1500 BC to just four to 8,000 a few centuries later, making it more like a large town than an actual city. After the year 743 BC, we start to get more information on Elam and some of its kings. This is partly because they began to take a more active role in the politics of ancient Mesopotamia. Basically, the Elamites were terrified at the rapid expansion of the Neo-Assyrian Empire. And so, Elamite kings almost universally adopted a policy of allying with their age-old enemy of Babylon to thwart Assyrian expansion, both in southern Mesopotamia as well as into their own territory. According to a Babylonian chronicle, in 743 BC, a king named Humban Nikash became the ruler of Elam. He was a contemporary of the powerful Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III. Though there was no open conflict between Elam and Assyria at the time, Humban-Nikash must have felt threatened when Tiglath-Pileser took over large parts of Babylonia and named himself King of Babylon. There was also at least one instance where Tiglath-Pileser even crossed the Elamite frontier to pursue his Aramean enemies. However, there was little that the Elamites could do, as Tiglath-Pileser was way too powerful to challenge in an open conflict. Finally, in 720 BC, and after Tiglath-Pileser III's death, Hunban Nikash decided to throw in his lot with the Babylonian Chaldean freedom fighter, or if you were an Assyrian rebel, Marduk Apla Idina II. There was also, though, a new Assyrian king in town, Sargon II. In the first major battle between the Elamite Babylonian alliance and Assyria, the Babylonian Chronicle actually credits the Elamites with doing most of the fighting on their behalf. Despite Marduk Apla Edina not showing up until after the battle was over, the Chronicle reports that Hunban Nikash had a resounding victory against Assyrian forces. 
For now, Mardokapla Edina was safe as the ruler of Babylon. Though the Elamites may have won the battle, Sargon's troops still occupied the strategic fortress city of Der, often called the Gateway to Elam and the East. Upon the death of Huban Nikash in 717 BC, the Babylonian Chronicle, again our main source, tells us that he was succeeded by Shutruk Nahunte II, who turns out was not his son, at least according to inscriptions found in Elam. At the time, Sargon II was busy campaigning in other regions, leaving Babylonia virtually undefended, which allowed Marduk Apla Edina to return and take power there yet again. Shutruk Nahunte II seems to have had a more cautious policy towards Babylon and Assyria than his predecessor. Though outwardly he supported Babylon against Assyria, he didn't support them in their hour of need when Sargon returned in 710 BC to deal with Marduk Apla Edina. In fact, when Marduk Apla Edina fled Babylon, he tried to bribe Shutruk Nahunte with a fine bed, throne, table, silver wash basin, and jewelry. Shutruk Nahunte took the objects, but ultimately fell short of lending any military support or even granting Marduk Apla Edina asylum in Elam. Shortly afterward, though, the two kings did come to blows over a small mountain kingdom called Ilipi, today in the area of the Zagros Mountains, south of the modern-day city of Kermansha. The conflict started over the death of King Dalta of Ilipi, who was a vassal of Assyria. Dalta, though, had not left behind an heir, and so a power struggle broke out between his nephews, Nibi and Ishpabara. While Nibi turned to Shutruk Nahunte and Elam for support, Ishpabara had the backing of Sargon II of Assyria. According to Assyrian texts, Shutruk Nahunte sent 4,500 bowmen to aid Nibi, but ultimately, these weren't enough to combat the resources at the disposal of the Assyrian army. Ishpabara became king of Elipi, with Sargon later writing that he, and I quote, filled the entire land of Elam with paralyzing fear for attempting to challenge him. Though each side would continue to do things to antagonize the other, it became clear at the time that neither wanted an all-out war between their two nations. Besides, the prize, Babylon, was once again firmly within Assyrian control, and so there was no need for Sargon to possibly jeopardize his position there. Sargon also was content to leave Marduk Apla Edina in his stronghold in the south, as long as the latter agreed not to cause unrest in Babylon. In 705 BC, Sargon II was killed in battle fighting against Chimerians and succeeded by his son, Sennacherib. Two years later in 703 BC, the rebel, Marduk Apla Edina, returned. This time around, he was seemingly more powerful as he'd secured the allegiance of several Chaldean and Aramean tribes. Perhaps due to this, Shutruk Nahunte II also decided to join the fray. Sennacherib gives us an account of his first campaign against the Babylonian Elamite alliance in one of his many inscriptions. Mardukapla Edina, king of Babylon, a rebel plotting treachery, a criminal abhorring justice, turned to Shutruk Nahunte, king of Elam, for help and bestowed upon him gold, silver, and precious stones, and asked him for support. As help for him, he, Shutruk Nahunte, sent to Sumer and Akkad Imbapa, the general, together with Nurgal Nasir, the Sutian chieftain, 80,000 bowmen and horses. 
Though we don't have any other accounts, especially Elamite ones, it seems to have been a pretty impressive anti-Assyrian coalition. The problem, though, may have been the willingness, or lack of courage, or even simply the inability of Marduk Apla Edina to lead the forces backing him against Sennacherib. It was also the Elamites who were doing most of the fighting. Perhaps fearing defeat, Marduk Apla Edina fled south yet again to the Chaldean strongholds where he had sought shelter in the past, while Shutruk Nahunte's forces, realizing that their candidate for king was perhaps a coward, retreated back to Elam. This allowed Sennacherib to enter Babylon once again and install his son, Ashur Nadim Shumi, as king. Deciding for the moment not to pursue Marduk Aplaidina, he then went to the northeast to campaign in the Zagros Mountains. It turns out that Ispabara, the king of Elipi whom his father, Sargon, had pretty much given the throne to, was in open rebellion against Assyria. In 700 BC, Sennacherib returned to Babylon and put an end to Marduk Aplaidina once and for all, forcing the latter to flee yet again, this time for good. According to Sennacherib's inscriptions, the two-time nuisance had simply died in the marshes. The Elamite incursions into Babylonian and Assyrian affairs had ultimately been failures for Shutruk Nahunte, and perhaps due to this, in 700 or 699 BC, the Elamite king was deposed by his brother, Halushu in Shushinak. We'll simply call him Halushu. His early years on the throne were relatively quiet, and he may have initially wanted peace with Assyria. However, Sennacherib wasn't in the same frame of mind. Perhaps like his father and grandfather before him, he also wanted to make a name for himself as a great conqueror. Up until then, he had just been chasing rebels and essentially been putting out fires. It was time for him to make a name for himself. In 694 BC, Sennacherib decided to preemptively attack Elam as punishment for its past support of Babylonian rebels. He built a fleet of warships in Nineveh, had Phoenicians sail it down the Tigris to the Gulf, loaded the boats with his troops, and then ferried them to southern Elam in order to lead a ground assault on the Elamite capital of Susa. Though the Assyrians did capture several Elamite principalities and towns, they didn't reach their goal of taking Susa. Alushu retaliated, not by attacking the Assyrians head-on in the south, which he probably left to the locals to take care of, but instead by marching directly into Babylonia. A Babylonian chronicle recounts what happened next. Halushu, king of Elam, came against Akkad, entered Sippar toward the end of the month Tashritu, and slew the inhabitants. Ashur Nadim Shumi was captured and carried off to Elam. The king of Elam placed Nurgal Ushizib on the throne of Babylon and invaded Assyria. In a letter from Sennacherib to his son and the future crown prince, Isarhadon, he also mentions Ashur Nadin Shumi's capture, but it's by Babylonians, not Elamites who captured and then extradited him to Elam, where it's assumed that he was executed. As for Nurgal Ushizib, who was the new Elamite-appointed puppet king of Babylon, he didn't last too long and was eventually captured by Sennacherib, who tells us that his men threw him fettered into a cage and brought him to me. I tied him up in the middle city gate of Nineveh like a pig. Of course, Sennacherib had the right to be angry. After all, the Elamites with Babylonian support had just murdered his son. So much for Elam's latest Babylonian adventure. As for Elam's own king, Halushu, 
according to a Babylonian chronicle, his people rebelled against Halushu, king of Elam, imprisoned and slew him. This seems to have been a common pattern in Elam. A king would launch a foreign campaign, only to be defeated, and shortly afterward, his restless people or opportunistic princes replaced him, in most cases with violence. You see, in such wars, especially with a superpower such as Assyria, it wasn't simply just the loss of men and territory that hurt everyday Elamites, but the halt of economic activity as well. Along with its military might, Assyria would have also placed severe economic sanctions on Elam and other states that did business with it. This most definitely would have included grain and other foodstuffs from Babylonia, which Sennacherib would have no doubt ordered to have been completely cut off. And so, facing starvation and economic ruin, it's not hard to see how or why in times of crisis the general Elamite population would have been eager to foster some sort of change by overthrowing the kings that they saw as the cause of their suffering. The instability in Elam was also an opportunity for Sennacherib, who in the aftermath of Halushu's death in 693 BC, to launch an offensive against his now most hated enemy. The new Elamite king, Kutur-Nahunte II, had little time to muster together any significant defense, and he's said to have evacuated many of his people from the areas that were under Assyrian attack. With regard to what was left behind, Sennacherib claims, The strong cities, his treasure houses, and the small cities, as far as the pass of Bidbornaki, I besieged, I captured, I carried off their spoil, I destroyed, I devastated, I burned with fire. As for Kutir Nohunte II, a Babylonian chronicle merely states that he was seized during an uprising and killed. Shocker there, I know. He ruled for no more than 10 months. Kutur Nohunte's successor was Humban Nimena III, who according to Sennacherib, gathered to himself a large body of confederates, the men of Parsua, Anshan, Pasiru, Ilipi, the whole of Chaldea, and all the Aramaeans. These with the king of Babylon drew near and set upon me, offering battle. Trusting in the might of Asher, my lord, I fought with them on the plain of Holule. So, this is actually a very interesting quote. It refers to what's known as the Battle of Halule and mentions a grand coalition consisting of some very interesting participants. Of course, we have Sennacherib's great nemesis of any king of Babylon who was not appointed by him, and also the troublesome, backstabbing kingdom of Elipi, which was mentioned earlier. However, it's the non-traditional adversaries, including the Parsua and Anshan, which I feel we should take a closer look at. In the old Iranian language, Parsua means borderland, which makes sense as it was literally one of the border or buffer states between the Assyrian heartland and Elam. Who the Parsua were, though, is still hotly debated. You have some scholars that make the claim that they're actually the Persians, but this has also been shot down by others who point out that though they may have been an Indo-European people, they're not the same group from which the Achaemenids would eventually sprout from. This, though, is definitely a topic for another time. Equally interesting is the reference to Anshan, which had been missing from Neo-Assyrian inscriptions and almost just as absent from Elamite ones as well, save for the title 
king of Anshan and Susa, that kings up until Shutruk Nahunte II had used. Pierre Briant, who's one of the top experts on Achaemenid Persia, suggests that this may have been because, by then, Anshan had probably been lost by the kings of Susa to the arrival of a new power, mainly Indo-European tribes like the Persians. So then the question becomes, was this contingent in the coalition from Anshan led by Elamites or Persians? Based simply on the name, we can't tell, but it's something interesting to think about and perhaps explore in another program. But back to the Battle of Halule. On this, there are conflicting accounts. The Babylonian Chronicle says that, and I quote, The armies of Elam and Akkad made an attack upon Assyria at Halule and defeated Assyria. Sennacherib, though, insists that he won. In what's known as the Nebi Yunus inscription, he states, I defeated them, cutting down with the sword 150,000 of their warriors, the king of Babylon and the king of Elam. The chilling terror of my battle overcame them. They let their dung go into their chariots. They ran off alone and fled their land. Later that year in 689 BC, Humban Nemena III suffered a stroke and died. The next few years were chaotic in both southern Mesopotamia and Elam. For one, Sennacherib absolutely decimated the city of Babylon. Now I've discussed this event in some detail in other programs, so I won't dwell on it here, but just to remind you of how total the destruction was, I'll let some of Sennacherib's words speak for themselves. I moved swiftly against Babylon, whose destruction I strove for, and like the onset of a storm I attacked. Like a mist I enveloped it. I filled the city with their corpses, the city and its houses, from its foundations to its parapets. I swept away, I demolished, I burned with fire. The wall and the outer wall, the temples and the gods, the ziggurat of mud brick and earth, as many as there were, I tore down and deposited them into the Aratu Canal. In the midst of that city I dug ditches and flooded its ground with water. The form of its foundations I destroyed and I caused its devastation to exceed that of any flood, so that in later days the ground of that city, its temples, its gods, would be forgotten. Sennacherib was true to his word. He also had no intention of rebuilding the city, and thus denied the next Elamite ruler, a new Babylonian king, to be his ally. Very little is known of Humban Haltash I, with the exception that he seemed to die of natural causes in 681 BC and was succeeded by Humban Haltash II. Sennacherib also died that year and was succeeded by his son, Isarhadon. The new king of Assyria was not like his father. For one, he pursued a policy of reconciliation with Babylon, including rebuilding the city. This policy also seemed to extend to Babylon's allies, including Elam. Humban Haltash II's brother Urtak became king in 674 BC and concluded a treaty with Isarhadan, where in addition to a cessation of hostilities, looted property, such as religious statues, were exchanged between both countries. This goodwill even extended after Isarhadan's death, when the new king of Assyria, Ashurbanipal, sent grain to Elam to help relieve the effects of a famine. 
Elamite refugees were even allowed to settle in Assyria until conditions in their homeland improved. Urtak, though, didn't return the favor. According to Ashurbanipal, he was duped into a war with Assyria by three other officials who wanted to see the Assyrian presence in Babylonia eliminated. In his annals, Ashurbanipal stresses Urtak's betrayal of his father's treaty and describes the conflict that ensued thereafter. On my eighth campaign, I marched against Urtak, king of Elam, who was not mindful of the favors of the father who begat me and did not maintain friendly relations. When hard times arose in Elam and there was famine, I sent him grain to keep his people alive, grasped his hand. Those of his people who had fled before the hard times and settled in Assyria until rain fell in his land and there was a harvest, those people who had kept themselves alive in my land, I sent back to him. The Elamite, an attack by whom I had never considered with my heart, of whose enmity I had not even thought, Bel-Iksha, chief of the Gambulu tribe, Nabushum Erish, governor of Nippur, and Mardukshum Ibni, a general of Urtak who had made common cause with them. They incited Urtak, king of Elam, with lies. Urtak, with whom I was not at enmity, mustered his army, rushed the war into the land of Karduniash. For reconnaissance upon the king of Elam I dispatched my messenger, I sent him in haste, and he went, returned, and reported reliable information to me, saying, The Elamite, like the encroachment of grasshoppers, is covering all of Akkad. Keep in mind that this is Ashurbanipal's version of events. We currently don't have another Elamite account of what happened, or Urtak's real motive for breaking the treaty and joining what seemed to have been a relatively insignificant coalition at least in comparison to years past. Anyway, Ashurbanipal tells us how he fought against and defeated the anti-Assyrian coalition. As for Urtak, the gods, according to Ashurbanipal, gave him a slow death, what in reality was probably some sort of disease. Ashurbanipal tells us, When he heard of the advance of my army, fear overcame him, so he returned to his land. I took after him, accomplished his defeat, pursued him to the border of his land. Urtak, king of Elam, who had not maintained friendly relations, on a day not appointed by fate, death became hostile to him. Amid mourning he began to reach his end and seep away. His feet no longer stood in the land of the living. That same year, his life came to an end. He went to his dismal fate. Asher and Ishtar, his royal dynasty they removed. The dominion of the land they gave to another. Afterwards, Teuman, image of a Galu demon, sat on the throne of Urtak. Given the relatively short reigns of previous Elamite kings due to domestic unrest, Teuman took no chances and went about purging Elam of Urtak's family or anyone who was closely associated with him. Ashurbanipal, though, was more than happy to grant asylum to any of these individuals. For him, they were simply more political leverage that he had over Elam. Ashurbanipal lists several family and other members of the dead king's entourage who sought refuge with him. According to an inscription, Teuman sent messengers monthly to Ashurbanipal, demanding that he extradite the remaining members of Urtak's family to Elam, but the Assyrian king 
refused. With each king making demands and throwing insults at the other, the stage was set for yet another protracted conflict between Elam and Assyria. In 653 BC, Te'uman began raising an army with which to attack Assyria. In response, Ashurbanipal led a sizable force to Der, the Babylonian gateway to Elam and the east. The two met in a pitched battle at Tiltuba on the banks of the Ulai River. In short, Ashurbanipal and the Assyrian army decimated the Elamite force and killed both Te'uman and his son, Tamaritu. In inscriptions found at Nineveh, Ashurbanipal tells us, I cut off the head of Te'uman, their king, the boaster who plotted evil. Countless of his heroes I killed. The Battle of Tiltuba is famously depicted in several reliefs that were carved onto panels on the walls of Ashurbanipal's palace at Nineveh. Now in the British Museum, they look like several comic strips put together to create an ancient graphic novel, which is not really too far off the mark because actually, in their day, these panels would have been painted with bright colors. The Assyrian army is depicted as having some of the best iron weapons, breast armor, and helmets basically the best and most advanced military technology of their day. However, the Elamite soldiers, if you could call them that, are simply dressed in short tunics with headbands. All that they really have are a sack of arrows and some carts that seem as if they were used as troop transports. One may wonder if this is even a professional army and not just some ragtag militia hastily put together to combat the Assyrian invasion force. We'll never really know, because we only have the Assyrian side of the story, which blames Te'uman for everything. The result of the Battle of Tiltuba was that the Elamite army was massacred, and Te'uman's head was severed off his body and taken back to Nineveh, where it was suspended by a ring from a tree in Ashurbanipal's garden, something that's also clearly illustrated in a well-known relief from Ashurbanipal's palace. Strategically, the defeat of Te'uman had lasting, some would say fatal, consequences for Elam. Ashurbanipal clearly had the upper hand militarily, and he also had princes and other members of Urtak's family that he could send to Susa with his backing to rule as puppets. Basically, Elam would become a client state of Assyria. It's ironic that two of the princes whom Te'uman demanded to be extradited to Elam actually were sent back just not in the way that Te'uman would have wanted. Ruling over different parts of territory, they became the new kings of Elam. The name of one of these kings was Umanigash, who went by the throne name Humban-Nikash II. In the end, it was really an Assyrian civil war that sealed the fate of Elam. Just before Isarhaddon, Ashurbanipal's father, had died, he divided rule of the Assyrian Empire between his two sons. The older, Ashurbanipal, received jurisdiction over Assyria and its outlying territories, while the younger, Shamashumuukin, was named King of Babylon. Technically, they were part of the same empire, but in charge of two different areas. Over time, though, Shamashumuukin felt like a second-class ruler compared to his brother, who presided over a much larger chunk of the empire than he did. And so, in 653 BC, he declared war against his brother Ashurbanipal for the throne of Assyria. 
Once again, the man who sat on the Babylonian throne, in this case the Assyrian Shamashumuukin, formed an alliance with the kings of Elam, including those whom Ashurbanipal had sent back. Without surprise, Ashurbanipal was obviously a bit ticked off, to say the least. Umanigash, the refugee, who had seized my royal feet, whom I had placed on the throne of Elam. Umanigash, for whom I had done many favors, made king of Elam, who was not mindful of the good relations. He did not keep the oath of the great gods. He accepted a bribe from the messengers of Shumashumuukin, my faithless brother, my enemy. In 652 BC, Umanigash, a.k.a. Humban Nikash II, sent troops to join Shamashumuukin's forces in southern Babylonia near the Elamite border. There, the combined Elamite-Babylonian army was defeated by the Assyrians. Again, a familiar pattern emerges. Elamite forces are decisively defeated in battle, the king leading or in charge of those forces is overthrown, and a new king takes his place. This is pretty much exactly what happened to Umanigash, who was dethroned and eventually murdered in 649 BC by a man believed to have been his nephew. One of the best sources that we have of what was going on in Elam at the time was not one of Ashurbanipal's inscriptions, but letters from one of his generals named Bel-Ibni. These letters periodically informed the king of events in the Elamite camp and beyond. It's from these documents that we learn about anti-Assyrian activities in the southern marshes of Babylonia, that there was famine on the Elamite side of the Gulf, and that Bel-Ibni orchestrated raids across the Elamite border that resulted in the capture of hundreds, if not thousands, of cattle using cavalry and archers in squadrons of 100. Umanigash's successor was Indabagash, who ruled perhaps for just over a year between 649 to 648 BC. Realizing that Shamashumuukin would eventually lose the civil war to his brother, he threw out an olive branch to Ashurbanipal by releasing several Assyrian prisoners and then sent an ambassador to Nineveh to conclude a treaty with Assyria. Ashurbanipal, though, wanted other prisoners to be released as well, or else he'd make sure that Indabagash would suffer the same fate as Teuman, whose head was probably still hanging from a tree in Nineveh. Either the message never got to Elam, or it fell on deaf ears after arriving, because the release of the prisoners demanded by Ashurbanipal never happened. And so, Ashurbanipal yet again marched against Elam, and when the Elamite people heard that he was on his way, in a repeat of history, they revolted against Indabigash and killed him. The man to replace him was Uman Aldash, who took the throne name Humban Haltash III. By now, there was chaos, if not total anarchy in Elam. In addition to the political turmoil, the economy was in shambles, and there was famine. As for the war between Ashurbanipal and his brother Shamashumuukin, after four years, it finally ended in 648 BC, when Assyrian troops entered Babylon, sacked the city, and, if the texts are to be believed, killed Shamashumuukin by burning him alive as he took shelter in his palace. With his rebellious sibling out of the way, Ashurbanipal could now focus more energy on the perennial Elamite problem. The situation in Elam had gone from very bad to worse. Bel-Ibni, Ashurbanipal's main general in the south, wrote the following in a series of letters. Umanigash, son of Amidira, 
has fomented a revolt against Umanaldash. From the Hudhud River to the town of Handanu, the people have rallied to him. Umanaldash has gathered his troops. Right now, they've taken up a position on the river facing each other. In another letter, he wrote that the people were in full revolt and that Umanaldash, fearing for his life, had taken refuge in the mountains. By this time, Ashurbanipal must have been tired of having to deal with his eastern neighbor again and again. And so he, along with his generals such as Bel Ibni, launched one final, massive campaign to deal with the Elamite problem, once and for all. In 647 BC, the Assyrian army ravaged and plundered the Elamite countryside, claiming to have destroyed 29 cities before laying waste to Susa itself. There was really nothing that the Elamites could do. Their leader, if you could call him that, was in hiding, and any rival princes or new claimants to the throne had little support outside of their own little principalities, many of which were also laid to waste by the Assyrian juggernaut. Umanaldash tried to rally whatever forces remained loyal to him for one last stand against Ashurbanipal, but without any success. There's a passage from Daniel T. Potts's book, Archaeology of Elam, that describes the situation quite well. He writes, Crossing the Edid River, Umanaldash prepared his forces for battle, using the river as a line of defense. City after city fell to Ashurbanipal's forces, sending Umanaldash once more into flight toward the mountains. At this point, the Assyrian forces pressed eastward as far as the border of Hidalu, destroying cities and towns, smashing some cult statues, and seizing others as booty, laying waste to an enormous area before turning back and heading for Susa. Here, Ashurbanipal entered the Elamite palaces, opened their treasuries, seized hold of the booty taken by earlier Elamite kings from Sumer, Akkad, and Babylonia, and took everything previously given by Shamash Shumu'ukin to buy Elamite allegiance. All of the gods and goddesses of Elam, along with their treasures, their possessions, their ritual paraphernalia, and their priesthood, along with the statues of kings made of gold, silver, bronze, and limestone, were seized and taken back to Assyria as booty. The graves of former kings were opened and destroyed, and monarchs' bones were also transported to Assyria. The destruction lasted one month and twenty-five days. There was even a statue of the goddess Nenea that had been looted from Uruk over 1600 years prior that was taken to Nineveh. In fact, there must have been many such objects that had been accumulated by the Elamite kings over the centuries, as well as even a greater number that must have been left behind. One of the more famous ones that we know about was the iconic monument with the law code of Hammurabi, now on display in the Louvre. That was actually uncovered in Susa in 1901 by a French team of archaeologists. Now, you all know how much I love quotes, or primary sources, and so I wanted to tack in one more from Ashurbanipal with regard to the destruction of Susa. This is what happened in his own words. In a month, I leveled the whole of Elam. I deprived its fields of the sound of human voices, the tread of cattle and sheep, the refrain of joyous harvest songs. I turned it into a pasture for wild asses, gazelles, and all manner of wild animals. Susa, the great holy city, home of their gods, seat of their mysteries, I conquered. 
I entered its palaces. I opened their treasuries where silver and gold, goods and wealth were amassed. I destroyed the ziggurat of Susa. I smashed its copper horns. I reduced the temples of Elam to naught. Their gods and goddesses I scattered to the winds. The tombs of their ancient and recent kings I devastated. I exposed to the sun. And I carried away their bones toward the land of Asher. I devastated the provinces of Elam. And on their lands I sowed salt. As for Uman al-Dash, he was captured, brought to Nineveh, and humiliated by being forced to draw Ashurbanipal's carriage in a celebration. And thus, Assyria's campaigns in Elam, and really Elam itself as a formidable political entity, ended. The land which had for millennia developed side by side with the peoples, kingdoms, and empires of Mesopotamia had been almost completely destroyed. Many Elamites, whether prisoners of war or captured townspeople, were deported to all parts of the Assyrian Empire, including the Assyrian heartland, Samaria, parts of what's today northern Syria, and even Egypt. Some of them were even drafted into the Assyrian army, though obviously they fought in locales relatively far from their homeland. Though Ashurbanipal may have dealt Susa a nearly fatal blow, in truth, Elam's decline had probably started long before, as it seems that the other great center of Elam, the once magnificent city of Anshan, had all but been abandoned a few centuries prior. This may have made it relatively easy for the Parsa, who we today know as the Persians, to have taken it over, and for one line of the Achaemenids to have established a dynasty there. We'll talk about Elam during the Persian period in another program. Thanks so much for joining me for this podcast. I really hope you learned something. And if you did, definitely check out the History with Sai channel and other material on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thank you so much, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Take care and stay safe.